Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Sometimes in life it's hard to find reason to celebrate. Going through difficulties or trials, tribulation, we look around us in this life and we recognize that it is one that can be filled with hardship. And we understand why that is. We understand that we live in this period of time in which God has allowed us to fall into our sin and give over our worship to the prince of the power of the air, and so we see around us the effects of our sin, the brokenness. And yet, during this time, we know that God has also revealed His salvation. And so though we do face the trials and tribulations of a fallen world, the effects of our sin, we also experience the joys of one who is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His first coming as a baby, grew into the perfect man, the perfect sacrifice, died in our place and rose from the grave. And as that living one who who died and rose again, He's now seated at the Father's right hand till all His enemies are made His footstool, till His Return And so as those who have trusted in Christ, living in a fallen world, we have yet a future hope. We have reason to celebrate. Even in the midst of our, of our trials and tribulation, we look forward to the return of Christ. The Apostle Peter wrote to suffering believers with this very goal in mind in the opening verses of his letter we call First Peter. And he told them that now, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that they they would be facing hardship in this life, but that they could remember that those trials would result in praise, honor, and glory when at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love and rejoice with joy inexpressible. Looking forward to what? The end of your salvation, the salvation of your souls, the the arrival of Jesus Christ in the clouds when we will be called to meet Him in the air. You see, we are a people who live with victorious hope because we serve a victorious King. It can be challenging at times to live with this hope. We get weighed down by the the day-to-day stuff of life, but we study a victorious God who shows what He's like in this psalm, in Psalm 68, and so you can open to that psalm. But I want you to notice, as we think about His past victories and His future victories, they're all based on who He is and what He's like. And there are just some rich truths about God's character through this psalm, that he's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, that he's one who daily bears us up, that he's the God of salvation, to him belong, escapes from death. So many rich phrases in this psalm that reminds us what our God is like and why as His people, day by day, we can celebrate because we have a victorious King. 
So let's think together how you and I can celebrate our victorious king. This is a psalm that celebrates his victory, past and future. It's a call to rejoice and to sing praise to God. David is the author of this psalm, as the heading tells us. It's for the chief musician, meant to be a part of their worship, and written by David as a song, a celebratory song. The question is, what is the occasion for this song? Why did David write it, and what's going on? Well, we we can't say for sure, but there are some fun clues in this psalm that I want to point out to you uh, that I think will help clarify what's going on in this psalm. Of course, being written by David has to be something that David experienced in his lifetime. Second, we notice through the psalm, it has to do with the presence of God going forth, almost marching to battle or this even a victory procession at times. We see this march, going forth, procession, this terminology is throughout the psalms, verse 7, verse 18, verse 24, verse 33. So this is some kind of going forth of the presence of God. Derek Kidner points out in his commentary that the opening line, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him, seems to be a reference to Numbers chapter 10 verse 35. In Numbers chapter 10, God gives Moses the instructions for the going forth of the ark of the covenant, the ark that represented the presence of God among his people. Listen to the words of Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. So it was, whenever the ark set out and Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So think back, every time the ark went out and the people of God moved from Mount Sinai, where that covenant was first made between God and His people, all the way through their marchings in the wilderness, every time they set up the tabernacle and picked up and moved again, all the way into you know, crossing the Jordan River and into the promised land as Joshua led the people in the conquest of the land, all the way marching to Jerusalem where finally the ark settled as the people of God were there in the land of the promised land of Israel, the procession of the ark. Now, through the ark's history, it was taken away from its resting place and brought back at various points, and this is where it, we come to David's life. One of his first acts as king in 2 Samuel was to kind of be thinking about, hmm, what should, what should I do now that I'm king? And he remembered the ark, which had been stored for years in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And so David comes up with this plan to move the ark to its home on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so David arranges this movement. It's one of the greatest celebrations in David's life as the ark arrives in Jerusalem. It's that scene where David is dancing before the Lord and singing with praise. And you remember his wife, Michael, is embarrassed at what he's doing in all of this. So I think, again, we can't say for sure, but I think this psalm is David's written celebration of the ark returning to its home, the the presence of God moving among the people of Israel as David looks back and celebrates the victories of God in the past, but also looks forward to a time beyond him. David looks past his own kingdom. It's, It's really cool. 
This is an epic psalm. Looking at the the proceedings of God's presence, winning victories for his people in the past and in the future. It's fun to think through our victorious God. So let's work through the psalm and think through some ways that we can celebrate our victorious king right along with David who rejoices in God. First, today we can rejoice in his righteous rule. Verses 1 through 6 especially highlight the character of God and what his rule will be like. And so in verses 1 through 3, David calls out to God that God's enemies would be scattered. And I love the imagery of verse 2 where he says that it will be like smoke being driven away. Just a wisp of smoke that just disappears in the wind as the presence of God moves forward in victory. Or like wax just kind of melting before God's fire, right? That's just rich imagery of God's strong victory. And so David actually says, let the wicked perish at the presence of God, that God in his presence would win. And yet on the other hand, verse 3, the righteous can be glad. They rejoice before God. Those who have a right relationship with God rejoice at his victory. Why? Because he's a righteous God. He does what is right. He does what is good. And so there's exceeding joy in the victories of God. Verses 4 through 6 highlight his character. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. What a rich picture. It's almost as if God in his military chariot is riding in the sky over all the earth. Who can stand against a warrior like that? And so he is extolled by his name, Yah, which is a shortened form of Yahweh, Jehovah, the I Am, the Eternal One. There is no warrior that matches our God. And so his people rejoice before him, the end of verse 4. But notice what he's like in verses 5 and 6. He's a father of the fatherless. He's a good and kind and righteous God. He's a defender of widows, those in need, who need protection, who need care, who need provision. This is what this God is like. This is what he's like in his holy habitation, meaning he is perfect in these ways. Verse 6, he sets the solitary in families. He cares for the one who is alone. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. Slaves are released and freed into freedom and prosperity, and the rebellious dwell in a dry land. So these verses highlight the very righteousness of God. His character defines his rule. And so therefore the righteous, those in right relationship with God, look forward to his rule. It will be defined by goodness and righteousness. We often look to those in authority for help when we feel like things are unfair or things are not righteous. We could imagine maybe two brothers wrestling one another in the family room. And uh, as the battle goes on, the younger brother knows that the older brother's a bit ticklish. And so the younger brother uh, uses, though he's smaller in size, uses the tickling to his advantage and begins tickling the older brother who can't withstand the power of the tickle, right? And so he begins to lose and calls out to dad across the room, Dad, it's not fair. There's no tickling allowed when we're wrestling. Isn't that the rule? So now dad has a choice to make, right? 
Will he step in and, ah, you're right, you're right, stop the tickling, wrestle again? Or will he let the younger, smaller son play to his own advantages? Or maybe the dad takes the third option, tackles them both and tickles them both till they can't uh, wrestle any longer, right? We often look to those in authority, those with more strength than us, in claims of unrighteousness and unfair. It's not fair, it's not right. Bring this to an end. Sometimes in this life, we hope in our earthly authorities to do that. And in fact, what earthly authorities we have, God has put in place to do just that, to put down evil and to support what is good. Sadly, our earthly authorities don't always do that the way they ought to. We know that this happens time and time again through history. Authorities fail in their role to do what is right, some good, some bad. But the problem is not authority. The problem is sin. And when we look forward to the rule of our God, we look forward to one who rules in righteousness, in sinlessness, in perfect justice and goodness and kindness. He is right in all his dealings. He wields authority perfectly. And so, friends, we look forward with joy to His righteous rule. Anytime we see authority being used poorly, we can turn our thoughts to the righteous rule of God. When your supervisor at work makes a foolish decision, when your husband sins against you, when your dad messes up, when your teacher shows favoritism, When your president suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Remember that authority is not the problem. Sinfulness is the problem. Look forward to the perfect authority and the righteous rule of our God. Remember His character, which defines His rule. His rule is righteous because He is righteous. He is good and compassionate. He cares for the needy, for widows, for orphans. He has compassion on the lonely. He is a good and kind king. The question is, when does David expect these things to be fulfilled? David could certainly look around in his own context and see that these things he's rejoicing in have not come to pass. They're not fully true. Now, certainly David tried to use his authority in a good way, but he knew he was not the perfect king. I think David looked forward to a time when God would again rule his, per- his people in perfect righteousness. He looked forward to a future kingdom. Later in David's life, he would receive this promise from, Sam- from God through Samuel that somebody from his very line would sit on the throne forevermore. David looked forward even to that king ruling in righteousness. But see, the problem is a perfect kingdom like that, the kind of kingdom that David looks forward to here, must only include perfect people. It must be a kingdom that involves those who have eternal spiritual life. Otherwise, how could it be an eternal kingdom? This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. At his first coming, Jesus, that future king of Israel, came to pay for the sins of the world so that by faith they could have their sins forgiven, God's perfect righteousness, 
and eternal life to be able to enter God's kingdom. At his second coming, Jesus' enemies will be put under him as his footstool and he will reign forever. And we look forward to that day as David did when he wrote this psalm. Because of the blood of Jesus, God is truly the father of the fatherless. And by faith in Jesus, the scriptures tell us we indeed become the children of God. Because of the blood of Jesus, God truly sets the lonely in families. The church is the family of God, is it not? And so here in the body of Christ, we see what the character of God is like. And though this is not that future kingdom that we look forward to, we begin to taste the very character of God and what the blood of Jesus Christ has purchased for us. That here in the body of Christ, God cares for the lonely. God cares for widows. God cares for the fatherless. Giving them a family, brothers and sisters in the family of God. I want to encourage you. Enjoy the character of God as seen in the life of the body of Christ. Lean into the people of God here, your family, your brothers and sisters, your spiritual fathers and mothers, and so on and so forth, delighting in what our God has done through the church and looking forward to how things will be forevermore in His kingdom. This encourages us as well to rejoice in His rule now. You see, His future rule will be defined by His character. But the beautiful thing about His character is that His character never changes. So what he, how He will rule then is how He is now. And so rejoice in His rule in your life even today. Delight in His character. He is good and He does good. As we continue in the psalm, David, I think now, in verses 7 through 18, follows the progression of the ark from Mount Sinai through the wilderness and into the promised land. And I think you'll notice that sort of tracks along with what we'll read here as he thinks of the history, God's victories, the victories that the moving ark, the presence of God, won for the people of Israel as they came to the promised land. What David is doing is he's recounting the past victories of God and encourages us to do the same thing. How you and I in our lives can recount the victories of God in the past. Certainly, we have seen his victories at work. So number two today from verses 7 through 18, we recount his mighty victories. Track along with me. I'll try to move quickly through these verses, and I hope you'll notice the movements of God as he wins victories for his people. Verses 7 and 8, first of all, David looks back to the time that God went before his people. Remember, this is again the presence of God with his people Israel. They marched through the wilderness. Okay, so think back to the Exodus. Verse 8, the earth shook, the heavens dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved. Indeed, we're told that when God met with Moses at Mount Sinai, that mountain itself was shaking at the presence of God. The establishment of God's Mosaic Covenant, as we call it, with the people of Israel as he prepared them with the Ten Commandments and the Ark and instructions for the tabernacle as they began to march through the wilderness. 
And so David's looking back to where this all began as God's presence was with his people, going before them, caring for them and protecting them. Verse 9, you, O God, sent a plentiful rain. Now, this could be literal rain during their time in the wilderness or might be like Exodus uh, chapter 16, I think it is, as well as um, uh, Psalm 78, where the manna is referred to as rain coming down from heaven, bread for the people. And so uh, it could be literal rain or it could be referring to the manna that God provided He provided this for them when they were weary, when the people, his inheritance, was weary in the wilderness. That's where they dwelled, verse 10. And God provided for them with his goodness. They didn't have much. They were poor. But there was God with his presence, meeting their needs, leading them, and caring for them. Verse 11 seems to transition to the conquest of the land. When God gave the word... At this point in time, the company of Israel, as verse 11 says, was great. They were large, ready to enter the promised land. And this is when, verse 12, kings of armies fled before them. Those who did not go to battle received the spoils of war, the things that they collected from the cities that God conquered for them. Verse 13 is a bit difficult to translate, but it seems like it's describing a transition from being poor to being wealthy. Those who slept among the sheep, uh, that's a poor person's bed, right? Instead will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver, her feathers with yellow gold. So much abundance of wealth that even the, the birds, as it were, could wear silver and gold. Verse 14, this was the time when the Almighty scattered kings. What a great statement of God's victory, leading His people into the promised land. The last reference, it was white as snow in Zalman. Zalman means the the black hill or something like that. And so, uh, again, hard to know exactly what this phrase is referring to, but some remembrance of God's entrance into the promised land. Verses 15 and 16 are interesting as the ark enters the land and approaches Mount Zion, which is where Jerusalem was located. It approaches that mountain and it's almost as if David here takes a peek to the north part of the land and he looks at the mountains of Bashan. This is a mountain range north of Israel. And he looks up to the north and there's all these peaks and all these mountains to the north. And so in verse 16, as he looks at those strong mountains to the north, he almost personifies them in verse 16 and says that those mountains, the mountains of Bashan, they fume with envy. Why? Even though they're taller and have more peaks than Mount Zion, they fume with envy. Why? Because this, Mount Zion, is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord would dwell in it forever. And so these mountains to the north of Jerusalem are jealous of Mount Zion, where God's presence is, where the ark finally settled there in Jerusalem. Again, some beautiful pictures here of the, the beauty of God's presence, the strength as he goes out to war. Verse 17, again, this military picture of God, the chariots of God are 20,000, thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them. Uh, as in Sinai, so as it was, now in his holy place, talking about Jerusalem there. Verse 18, 
You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. So the presence of God finally ascends to Mount Zion, dwelling there in Jerusalem. And in his conquests, he led captivity captive and received gifts from those he had conquered. So verse 18 closes with this great victory statement. All of these things pointing to this procession of the ark, I think. God's presence winning the victories in the past. And David rejoicing in what God had done in the past. He's recounting God's mighty victories. There is something about telling an exciting story, isn't there? Describing a great victory of the past. This happens to be a a favorite pastime of of young men when they're in groups telling stories of their father's great victories, right? So, you know, I played soccer through my growing up years, and I remember, I think it was in elementary school or so, uh, some soccer practice, maybe during a water break or something like that. Um, You know, in an effort to make ourselves look like better soccer players, we began sharing stories of how great our dads were at soccer, And so, you know, everyone was kind of telling their own story. Yeah, well, my dad, you know, started on varsity in high school. Oh, wow, okay, very cool. You must be a good soccer player then, you know. So we're telling all these things. And so I happen to recall a story my dad had told me one time that uh, while he was in college, uh, he had received an invitation uh, to try out for the Olympic soccer team, okay? And so I thought, wow, now this is... That's pretty cool, trying for the Olympic soccer team. I'm like, that, this is going to fly real well uh, with my friends here. And so I piped up and said, yeah, well, my dad was invited to try out for the Olympic soccer team. You know? And at the time I was growing up, Olympic soccer was a bigger thing uh, than it was early on. And so I remember uh, later coming to my dad and like, this really happened, right, Dad? Like, you were asked to try out for the Olympic soccer team, right? And he's like, well, let me explain a little bit. Like, oh, well, I didn't share that part with my friends. You know, soccer wasn't as big of a deal back then. And so, sure, he did get the invitation, but it was one that kind of went out across the whole nation. And so, he, you know, these kinds of details. You're like, oh, okay, but you were invited to try out for the Olympic soccer team. Yes, you could summarize it that way. Yes. All right, that works. You know, it's like... Why? We, we, we like that sense of competition. We like to be able to, to brag about the person we know or who's the strongest dad, so on and so forth. In a sense, this is what David is doing here. He's looking back to the victories of his heavenly father, the father of the fatherless. <laughs> He's the mighty one. You, you can't top the stories of God's victories. You can brag on that dad all day long. Because he's victorious, and he's strong, and he's almighty. And even as we look back to the conquests of Israel, we see the strength of our God caring for his people. But there are many other stories we could select to tell about our God and his victories. In a sense, this psalm becomes a fun proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. Because as we read about the way our Father God provided in the conquest of Israel, we happen to notice a lot of parallels and similarities to the great victory of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. I don't know if you noticed those parallels. 
It should be no surprise to us because Jesus is God the Son, and so, of course, His victories will look a lot like the victories of the Father leading the people of Israel. But as you look back through this story, you may notice the similarities of Jesus' great victory. In fact, Jesus himself is the one who rides on the clouds, isn't he? In his ascension, heading to heaven, to his victorious seat at the Father's right hand, being taken up in the clouds. And we know that in the rapture, in his return, he again will ride on the clouds, as we read in verse 4. Similarities with his Father here. You notice also that as we read in verses 5 and 6, it was through the work of Jesus Christ that indeed God has provided a uh, father for the fatherless, a defender of widows, and one who sets the solitary in families. He's also the one who commands the armies of God. We read in Revelation how when Jesus comes again riding on that white horse, he precedes the armies of God dressed in white ready to do battle and win God's great victory. Even verse 18 reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul actually quotes this verse in Ephesians chapter 4. There, talking about the victorious uh, ascension of Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection, Paul quotes this verse talking about Jesus. Jesus has ascended on high and led captivity captive But then he makes an adjustment. There in Ephesians 4, he says that he gives gifts to the church. Jesus, in his great victory, like his father, ascended on high. And not only is he worthy of tribute gifts as the victor, but Jesus established the church and gave gifts to the church for its establishment and growth. And so we too can tell stories of God's great victory, looking back to the victory Jesus Christ won over the grave. To say with the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? We, We look to the Lord Jesus Christ and recount his mighty victory. We too can tell the story of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you to know the gospel, know the account of that story, the story of God's salvation in your life, what God the Father did through God the Son to provide for victory over your sin and death. Be ready to share that story, beginning with your own need for the gospel, moving to how you heard the gospel and then received the gospel, and finally how you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for you. As we move into verses 19 and following, we come to the next section of the psalm where David seems to revel in what's coming. He's reveling in the future, in what I think are God's promises here. So that's our third point for today. We revel in His promised return. David begins to use the future tense, and he begins to talk about things that have not yet happened. They're not present in David's kingdom. He's looking with eyes of faith to what will happen in the future, based on the character of God and what he believes God will do. So notice, 
How we revel in the promises of God. Verses 19 and 20, David blesses the Lord for his provision and care. The phrase is rich. In the New King James, it says, who daily loads us with benefits. And it's, again, tricky to translate the original, but it's literally day, day. And the sense is that it's day by day. Every day, there's this emphasis on the daily provision of God. David calls the Lord the God of our salvation. And so that phrase, day by day, can again be translated a few ways. If you're reading the New King James, it says that he daily loads us with benefits. And that's one way to take it, that day by day we receive help from God, which certainly is true. The other way to read it is that day by day he bears us up. And I tend to like that translation better because it fits with God's being the God of our salvation, which is what David is talking about in this verse. And so day by day, he bears our burdens. In fact, I think that's what the New American Standard Bible translates as, if you have that one. Day by day or daily, he bears our burdens. He holds us up because he's the God of our salvation. It's a rich promise and truth about God. Our God is the God of salvation, verse 20, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Now, of course, David was thinking about escapes from physical death and maybe even thinking in his own life about how he had escaped Saul so many times as praising the God of his salvation. But as we read this through eyes of faith and remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, we recognize that indeed escape from eternal spiritual death is also from the Lord, only through his Son Jesus Christ. So David in verse 21 begins to look to the future. He says, God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. That's a pretty phrase, isn't it? The hairy scalp of the one who goes on in his trespasses. It, it emphasizes a, a, a young ruler who has you know, lots of hair uh, on the crown of his head. And yet, in his strength, he is rebelling against God. And it says that God will wound the head. That's a mortal wound. Our thoughts may go even as we come to uh, verse 23, that his foot may crush them in blood and the tongues of the dogs may have their portion from your enemies. We could think even of Genesis 3.15 where we're told that the seed of Adam will crush the head of the serpent. See, God will win his victory over every enemy, and it's a mortal blow. As we continue on in verse 24, the question is, are we looking backwards now or are we looking forwards? David says in verse 24, they have seen your procession, O God. Here we have a kind of a victory march of God. And David says, they have seen. So it sounds like we're looking back, but the they looks back to the previous verses referring to the enemies that are in the future. And so there are two ways to take this. And admittedly, you could look at it both ways. David could be describing his own procession with the ark to Jerusalem and the the celebration. You notice in verses 24 through 27, it's quite a celebration. There are maidens singing, there are instruments playing, Uh, the leaders of the tribes of Israel are all there. And so David could be describing his own procession into Jerusalem and that his present day enemies are seeing this. 
It's also possible that because he's talking about the enemies from verse 23 that are yet future, the heads of whom God has not yet crushed, that this description is also looking forward to the future, the procession of the mighty King Jesus into Israel. That there in the millennial kingdom, this Israeli procession will take place where God leads the tribes of Israel and King Jesus takes his throne over all his enemies. Again, hard to say for sure. I like imagining the latter interpretation there, that this is about a future procession of King Jesus for his people Israel. So there's that procession. You see that it's a, it's a beautiful celebration. There are singers playing on instruments, there are maidens playing the timbrels, and they're blessing God among the people of Israel. Verse 27, even the, the leaders of the tribes are there. Benjamin and Judah, the southernmost tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, the northernmost tribes are used, are, are described to just say all the tribes from south to north were all represented in this procession rejoicing in God's victory. David is looking not at himself, but as you see in verse 24, God, my king. David looks to another king, not himself. And so again, a great victory march here. Verses 28 and following continue to look to God to provide the strength for Israel. God has commanded strength, strengthen what you've done for us. Uh, He's rejoicing in the temple in Jerusalem in verse 29. He looks to a time when kings will bring presents to God. Isaiah chapter 60 looks at this as the time in the millennial kingdom when Jesus will reign and other kings will pay tribute to him as the king of kings and lord of lords. And so David, I think, is looking forward to this rule of the great king. Verses 30 and 31 talks about how God will rebuke destroyers. The beast of the reeds could refer to Egypt, uh, where reeds were populous. The, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people is hard to know exactly what it's referring to, but both the beasts and the bulls were, were strong-willed and destroyers of things, and it says God will rebuke them. When, when everyone submits himself with pieces of silver, paying tribute to Jesus, the King of Kings. So David calls on the Lord to scatter the people who delight in war. Even from Egypt and Ethiopia, some will come and stretch out their hands to God. Jesus will be worshipped by all as the King of Kings. What a beautiful picture David paints as he points to the future and revels in God's promised return. David knows it's not his kingdom. (laughs) The beauty and the, the celebration is about God and His power, and His rule. Indeed, we ought to be a people who look forward to His return, who revel in His promised coming. It's the name of our church, right? Maranatha. This was a common prayer, we think, in the early church. It's recorded in Scripture one time in Aramaic. There is this, Come, Lord, calling for His return. And the New Testament authors, author after author, writes about the imminent return of Christ. That Maybe even today he will come again and reign forevermore. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 13 reminds us that this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting 
till his enemies are made his footstool. That's where he is now, and we're awaiting that day. Titus 2, chapter, or verses 11 and 12, tells us to be looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, with our eyes to the clouds, awaiting the return of the one who rides on the clouds. The book of Revelation lays out the timeline for us with phrases like, and then, or after these things. We read in chapter 3, verse 10, that the church is kept from the hour of trial, I think referring to the rapture. Then the Lamb presents Himself there around the throne of God as the one worthy to pour out the wrath of God during what's called the tribulation period. Why? Because He redeemed to Himself a people for God's name by His blood. So in chapters 6-18, through the Lamb indeed pours out God's wrath with the opening of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and you're familiar with those things. We come to chapter 19. The end of all things, and there is the Lamb. And in chapter 19, 1 through 10, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church, the bride of Christ, celebrates its marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you've trusted in Christ as Savior, you'll be there on that day. What a celebration! After that marriage supper of the Lamb, we see in chapter 19, 11 through 21, the rider on the white horse. Jesus, the conquering king, comes to put down his enemies, and there he is with the name above all names, King of kings and Lord of lords. He does battle on the earth and conquers all his kings, in a, all the earth's kings, in a scene sort of like what we read of in 21 through 23 of this psalm. Then, after that victory, Satan is bound in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. The Lamb reigns with his bride for a thousand years over Israel in the promised land. Maybe that's when this wonderful procession we read about here in Psalm uh, 68 takes place. I don't know. But the king comes into his city, Jerusalem, rules from Mount Zion in the millennial kingdom. After that thousand years, there's another battle. And in chapter 20, verse 7 through 15, we read about the final judgment. When all those who have rebelled against God are cast into the lake of fire. And those whose names are not written in the book of life. Then that millennial kingdom is ushered into the eternal kingdom. When the new heaven and the new earth are created by God. And we will reign with Him forever. Chapters 21 and 22 talk about that new heaven and new earth and the reign of God forevermore. You want to get excited about the return of Christ, read those chapters and what they will be like in our future home with Him forevermore. Friends, this life, even with its trials and tribulations, is just a short prelude to the eternal kingdom of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And he'll call us to the clouds to meet him in the air. And we'll watch as he reigns over all evil and every nation on earth. And he will be praised by our mouths forevermore. Are you excited about the return of Christ? Revel in his promises. I'm not saying this life isn't hard and that we don't suffer and that there aren't difficult things we go to, but the beauty of the return of Christ is that even these trials are working in us a far more and eternal weight of glory. 
And so we long for his return. With David here in Psalm 68, we look forward to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we come to the final section where David just closes with this universal praise. So number four today, praise his universal, eternal victory. Verses 32 through 35, David calls on all the kingdoms of the earth. It's kind of like Psalm 67. The scope is just massive here. That everyone would praise the Lord. To him who rides on the heavens of heavens, verse 33 is much like verse 4, which we read earlier. This ancient one, King Eternal, rides on the clouds. None can stand against him. At the end of verse 33, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, the voice that calms the seas, the voice that created the earth, the voice that will usher in the new heaven and the new earth, the voice that reigns over all, this strong voice. And so verse 34, we ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. And that word over can mean either that he, he exhibits his strength over his people. He rules them with strength. Or it can mean that his strength is greater than them. Well, Israel's never been all that strong in and of themselves. And so I think this is an example of God ruling over his people with strength. But just to be sure we understand that his strength is greater than all, David says his strength is in the clouds. It's, it's above any of us, higher than anyone else. And so with joy, David closes, Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. He's thinking of the dwelling places of God and maybe even thinking of the ark, which represented the presence of God, which then was stored in the temple, the holy of holies, which represented the presence of God. But David is acknowledging God's greatness is not seen in the temple. It's not seen in the ark. God's greatness is greater, more awesome than his dwelling places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. God's victories in Israel in the past, God's victory promised for the future, calls everyone to praise God for his strength, his eternal, universal victory, won at the cross of Jesus Christ. So friends, encourage you to live a life that praises his universal victory. We love to celebrate championships and have debates over who's the GOAT, right? You know what that stands for, the greatest of all time. And so growing up, my dad and I loved watching the Chicago Bulls. And so you can guess what my opinion is as to who the greatest basketball player of all time is. But even with NBA championships, right, there was one just completed a few weeks ago. I think the Denver Nuggets won the championship. And so, yes, they're the greatest. They won the championship for now, right? We're already talking about the next season and who's going to be the champion next year. It just doesn't last. Even the greatest of all time, I thought for sure, nobody's ever going to argue. Michael Jordan, he's the greatest of all time. But then I lived long enough to see people debating even that fact, right? That's because people debate it doesn't mean it's not a fact, but still. <laughs> the likelihood is that there will be somebody else, maybe someday, who will be called the greatest of all. The thing, humanly speaking, it's not possible to be the greatest of all time, but there is one who is. There's one goat. <laughs> he is the greatest of all time. We've seen his victories in the past, and we look forward to his eternal, universal victory. Come, Lord Jesus. 
I wonder, are you a citizen of that kingdom? Have you known God's forgiveness, righteousness by faith, eternal life, so that you can become a member of His kingdom, as Colossians chapter 1 talks about. This is done not by our merits, not by our works, not something we can earn. It's done only by faith in the King who died and rose again. Would you trust in Him today? If you have, are you rejoicing in His strength? Even now, even today, there's a rest and a peace that comes from acknowledging God's strength and sovereign reign even now. That as we go through health struggles and financial difficulties and questions about the future, it does not shake us to our core because we know who reigns over it all. And we know what He's like. And we know what's coming. And we trust Him. Are our lives a testimony of praise to our God? Do our lives show our submission to His rule? Celebrate our victorious King. May our lives be a testimony of His character, of His strength, of His rule, that as people look at us, they see we serve a good and righteous and strong King Eternal. Let's give Him praise as we close today. Father, we thank You and we do praise You for what You have done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we look forward to the day when the Lord Jesus will return and You will put down all of Your enemies. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to live in light of Your power and strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.